0: You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we've already been through a lot of the historical background. We did at the 400 silent years, and we looked at all the fascinating things that happened For those 400 years before the birth of Jesus, I won't recap any of that history now. We've done that a few times, you can go back and listen to the past studies for that. Last week, we actually did begin to look at the text. If you remember, we looked at Luke's introduction, just three or four verses from the Gospel of Luke, where he gives us basically the purpose of his work he tells us a little bit about how he conducted himself when he was writing the gospel you remember that he did meticulous research it says he investigated everything carefully from the beginning he spoke to the eyewitnesses and he had access to all of them because of his position amongst the apostles and that would have included The already existing Gospels of Matthew and Mark would have included witness, testimony, oral tradition, and all those things that we talked about last week. And you remember the way he phrased it was the exact truth. He wanted Theophilus, the person he's writing, to know the exact truth of what Jesus, his life, teaching, and his death and resurrection meant, Uh, and that is really what we're going to expand for the study of all of our Gospels. They are telling us the exact truth of what happened all those years ago. It was a wonderful introduction, and if you remember last week, we also spent a bit of time just talking about why the Gospels are all slightly different And this is an important question because it's often a a comment that critics make of the Bible. Why does this Gospel of John disagree with the Gospel of Matthew and on? And I gave you the illustration that John says that there was so much that Jesus said and did that not even all the books in the world could contain it. So this tells us that basically each gospel writer had a different theme and a different purpose for their particular gospel. Although they're sharing the same story, they didn't necessarily include the same things because it only, they only included it if it helped advance their themes. And we went through all of the different themes. Remember, Matthew was sharing Yeshua as king of the Jews and Luke was writing to Greeks, Mark to the Romans. and John. And we went through all of this. I won't go through it again. The picture there I gave you is a little sort of visual representation of how the gospel writers selected it. If you put everything Jesus did in a circle, then you can imagine that each different gospel writer would only pick the episodes, events and teachings that they wanted for their particular purpose. And that's a very good way of explaining. That's how ancient history is recorded. It's how all history is recorded, really. Selection and arrangement of why we have some stories in some Gospels that you don't have in the others. That's just a characteristic of eyewitness testimony, actually. So that's what we dealt with last week. This week, we are going to again do introductory material. We're going to start looking at the introduction in the Gospel of John because some of the themes that he deals with chronologically are, of course going back before the birth of Jesus in the Gospel stories, which is where some of the other Gospels starts. But John is a unique Gospel and he starts in a very unusual way. So turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, please. You remember we said that the Gospel of John, the theme of that Gospel was presenting Jesus as the Son of God. It focuses on the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And at the end of that book, John gave a clear purpose for why he wrote the Gospel of John. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says this, But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's a very specific purpose we have there for the Gospel of John, and that is one of the reasons why most evangelists, you'll say, they'll give out a little Gospel of John to people on the streets. John is a specific Gospel that is written for the intention of showing that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And we'll see that as we go through this book, particularly what we're going to study this morning. So it has that evangelistic purpose. But let's read the first five verses are what we will cover this morning. But really, if you look in your Bibles, the whole introduction is 18 verses. John verses 1 to 18 are all the introductory material. But let's read these ones. Very famous verses, hopefully that if you're familiar with them. So immediately we are confronted with an affirmation of the deity of the Messiah. That is the statement that Jesus Christ is God. We call this in theology the eternality of the Son or the pre-existence of the Messiah. And this is answering the charge that you'll hear many cults make today that Jesus was just a good man, that he was just a human, on and on those claims kind of go. The Gospel of John immediately deals with this in this first verse here. But before I jump in to to just expositing those verses, remember I did say that part of this series we want to focus on the Jewish framework that Jesus lived in and understand why the authors write as they do. So some of this is heavy lifting. I'm going to try and break it down to you, but there's a lot in these first 18 verses. They're probably some of the most theologically rich verses in all of the Gospels. So we need to break this down. Notice in the first verses the use of the term the word as a title. You see that? In the beginning was the word. And this is what goes on. Now, if you've been in church a while, you understand, obviously, well, that's referring to Jesus. And absolutely, it is. But notice, it doesn't say that in these first few verses right here, does it? You actually don't get that identification until verse 14. If you look down to verse 14, where it says the word became flesh. That's obviously talking about the incarnation. So that's when you get that. But he introduces the concept of the word here without, without any explanation just almost assuming that his readers will be familiar with this concept of the word and these attributes that it seems to have. And that is what I want to look at a little bit this morning. Now, in in Greek, the term word is logos. The Greek word is logos. And there's a whole term, it's a very popular word. There's a whole thing known as the logos doctrine, the teaching of the word. And this is what we're looking at here. So we have got it translated as the word in our English Bibles, In the Greek, it will read logos. And what I want to look at just before we jump into the text is what this actually is. What was in the Apostle John's head when he was using this term, referring to it with personality, with creative power, with divine nature and all these different things. Now, scholars will go through. There are three possible sources for this term logos. Okay, now stay with me as we go through this. It'll be worth it in the end, I hope. There are three possible sources. The term logos is used in Greek philosophy. A lot of the early Greek philosophers used this idea of the logos as in the word. They associated it with reason and with speech. And most Bible commentaries will take this route. As they're discussing, I've read a lot of them, their commentaries on John chapter 1. And they will argue a little something like this. The Apostle John is trying to connect his gospel to the Greek thought of the day. You remember all this, the world was Greek in that sense, in many ways. And they utilize this Greek philosophical philosophical concept of the word. And they want to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And they would do that by saying he is the very idea of God, reason, and he is the expression of God, speech. That's the kind of angles that most commentaries take. Most of the ones that I read not the ones that focus on the Jewish backgrounds. But that's one option, and that is probably the most popular one in the Christian church. The second option, there's also a man called Philo of Alexandria who talks about this thing called the Logos a lot in his writings. He's an unusual character. He was Jewish, but he was what we called a Hellenistic Jew. Now, if you've been listening for the past four weeks, you will know what a Hellenism is, what the Hellenistic Jew was. Remember, we went through the history, Alexander the Great, spread Greek Hellenism across the, the Empire, and many Jews didn't know how to speak Hebrew, and they focused on the Greek, they mixed Greek philosophy. He was one of these persons that did that. So he actually used Greek philosophy to interpret the Old Testament. And because of that, he has a, an unusual mix. Some of the stuff he says about the logos, the word is correct, some of it is not correct. But that's the second option, and some people take that in their commentaries too. However, we need to remember... John. The Apostle John was a Galilean fisherman. Okay, he was a Galilean fisherman. It is very unlikely that he mixed in the circles of Alexandrian philosophers over in Egypt. Alexandria was Egypt. Remember, we, we looked at the founding of that city. It's very unlikely that is the source for his doctrine. And it's very unlikely that he is actually trying to take the idea from Greek philosophy too. Most likely, and I would say for me, definitely this is where he gets it from, you don't really need to look any further than the Judaism that was in Israel in the first century for the background for this understanding. Now, I'm going to go through it with you very quickly. Well, not say very quickly, not very quickly. We're going to spend a few, a bit of time going through it, and then we're going to come into our text. Hopefully it will be illuminating for you, if for nothing else, really, I want you to jump back into the first century to understand why he's writing it in such a way. It just gives you an insight into what the apostles were thinking, which is beneficial for our understanding of the scriptures. So the Logos doctrine, the Logos, remember Greek meaning the word, this doctrine of the word that John has just been writing about is in fact what we call Targumic theology. Now let me explain that to you. It's an unusual word, you may never have heard it. A Targum, is an Aramaic translation of the Old Testament Bible, okay? And they were almost a cross between a translation and an interpretation, kind of similar to what we would call a paraphrase today in many ways, those ones that get all the the controversy because they're usually just done by one person. But the Targums were quite similar. They were Aramaic, which was a very common language during first century Israel, and they were very popular with the common man. They were designed to be easy to read, and they offered a bit of interpretation as you go through. That is what a targum was. You can go on Amazon and you can still buy the targums today. They're still very popular. This is what they had here. Now, the Aramaic term that we see as using the the term word in English was this. It was memra. So that's how they translated word. The Greeks would use the term logos, And in English, we have the term word. So that's your sort of chain there that you can see on, because this is how language kind of works, these different ways that they translate it. The Aramaic, which was what was very popular in the first century Judaism, they used this term memra. And they had a whole understanding of this memra, this word, this understanding of the word. So what I'm trying to show you is that that we come and we talk about the word Jesus Christ, and it's very much associated with a Christian doctrine, isn't it? We think it comes from the Gospel of John, it comes from the New Testament. No, what John is doing is he's just utilising pre-existing Jewish theology and he's showing that it points towards Jesus Christ as the fulfilment of it. So let me just show you briefly now what the Jewish people in the first century and before already thought about the word, the memra or the logos, however you want to use it. All of those are kind of interchangeable in our study here today. The logos, they used it in Jewish writings all the time. Let me show you a few. Now, these are not Bible writings. These are what we call apocryphal books. They're Jewish writing written before the time of Jesus, some of them, and around that time, to show you the thoughts. With the wisdom of Solomon, 1815, just notice how it talks about the word. Your all powerful word from heaven's royal throne leapt into the doomed land. It's an unusual phrase. Now, it could be poetic and it could sort of be a personifying word. You see this all the time. Let me give you another one. This is from a Jewish work called Ben Sirach. He says, now I will recall God's works. What I have seen I will describe. By the Lord's word, his works were being brought into being. He accepts the one who does his will. So it identifies the word here as the agent of creation, the one who works the works of God. And there's many more of these. Let me show you something from the Targum. So in Deuteronomy 33, this is our Old Testament book. It reads like this. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And then the Targum oncleus, which is the most popular Aramaic translation, it says, as the eternal God, and then they've inserted this, whose word originally created the world. And beneath are the world's strongest arms. He banished the enemy from your presence. Now notice again, it's introducing this concept. The term word there is this memra, this logos. So they're again identifying it as the one who created the worlds. So you get this unusual mix where they sometimes use it as a euphemism for God's name. Sometimes they apply creative power to it. So there's all these different things. I could give you hundreds of examples of this sort of thing throughout these translations in Jewish literature. But I'm going to summarize for you six things that they believed about the word before Jesus, this is ancient Jewish literature here, and then it'll hopefully show you why John is doing this, because in John's first 18 verses to his Gospel, he uses these exact six things. He mentions every single one of them exactly correctly as the Jewish people would have understood. He's making a very pointed argument towards the nation at this time. So the first belief that the rabbis had about the Memra, or the word here, is that it is distinct from God, but the same as God. Now that's an unusual thing to say. That's almost a paradox, isn't it, we could say. The distinct from God, but the same as God. However, the rabbis never actually explained this. They just stated them both as being equally true. And this is, I believe, what John is picking up on. John did the very first, very same thing in his first verse. In the beginning was the word, the Memra. The word was with God, distinct from God. And then he says the word, was God, the same as God. So he says it's both distinct from God and the same as God. That is pre-existing Jewish theology about the word, but John is now explaining it, and through the rest of his gospel and introduction he will. The only way that is explained is in terms of the Trinitarian God that we hold, Jesus Christ the Son, who is by his nature divine, but he is also distinct as the second person of the Godhead, not the Father. And this is what he's going to develop throughout his thing. It's very It's quite a sophisticated bit of theology that John is teaching here. But that is the first thing. The second thing, the word, the memra, is the agent of creation. This is what they also believed about the word. Whenever God created, it was by means of his word. Of course, they get this from just reading the Old Testament. God spoke and things come into existence. John, the apostle, also picks up on this. Look at verse 3 in his introduction. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Everything was created through Jesus Christ, is what it's saying. The Apostle Paul also says something very similar in Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. Okay? Just the same going on again. The third thing. The memory, the word, is the agent of salvation. This is what the rabbis used to teach about the word. It was the agent of salvation. Speaking of both physical salvation in something like the Exodus, but also spiritual salvation. Let me give you an example of this again. Leviticus 25, 38 reads like this in in the Old Testament. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give to you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And then this is from the, the Targum again, the Aramaic translation. I am the Lord your God who brought you out, redeemed from the lands of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan, so that my memory, my word, may be for you a redeeming God. You see, this is the understanding that they had of this concept here. So that's the third, the third thing. The fourth thing, we'll go through these last ones a bit quickly, the means by which God became visible. The word, this is very important, the word was the means by which God became visible. If you remember your Old Testament, God often would become visible through different means. Uh, the Shekinah glory, we call it, uh, a light, a pillar of fire, or a pillar of cloud, something like that. This was the visible presence of God. Sometimes the angel of the Lord this is characterized like that. We call it a theophany in Christian theology, but the Hebrews called it just the Shekinah glory. You remember it says the tabernacle, and above the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God dwelt. This is the idea here. And if you follow the history through, the Shekinah brings us to this Exodus reference. This is when we first find the word there being brought with the tabernacle. God dwelt among the Israelites in the middle of them. And then remember, eventually through their sin, we have that passage in the book of Exodus where the Shekinah glory departs from Israel reluctantly, Because of their sin. And for several centuries, they are without the visible presence of God. That is the history of Israel. What John is doing now, basically, is saying that after six centuries of absence, Israel, without the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah glory has now come back to you, is now dwelling again in your midst, but he's dwelling not as a pillar of fire, not as a pillar of cloud, he is now dwelling in human flesh. And that is the whole point of John's introduction here. It's a radical statement that he's actually making, that this word, this Shekinah, this memory that they've all understood, that departed from them, is now back again, but they need to understand he's come back in the form of human flesh. This is what we talk about at Christmas. This is the theology that is going to do with the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ. And John makes it clear when he says, the word became flesh and dwelt tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The fifth thing, the means by which God signs a covenant. This is an unusual one. So they believed that the word, Memra, Logos, all the same, remember, this is what they believed. It was always the way by which God signed a covenant. There are many covenants in the Bible, some made with humanity, Eden and Adam, many made with the Jewish people, Abraham, the Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, all these sorts of things. Doesn't, don't worry about them too much Now, the Jewish teaching was that whenever God sealed a covenant, it was also by means of the word. And John, I believe, alludes to this in his introduction in verse 17. He says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realised through Jesus Christ. Now, what did Jesus Christ do? When we take communion, what do we always say? We read certain portions of scripture that talk about this is the blood of the new covenant. And remember, they believed a covenant always had to be sealed by the word of God. John has just told them that the word of God has now become flesh amongst them. So how did he seal the covenant? And this is what we say, this is the blood poured out for you of the new covenant. He sealed the new covenant with his death, basically on the cross. That is what the cross is pointing us towards. This is very Jewish theology that we're looking at here. The means by which he signs a covenant and the final one is the agent of revelation. This means that the understanding whenever God revealed himself, it was by means of the word. And this is quite interesting again. John, in his introduction, in verse 18, he says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus Christ is the one who reveals the Father. Now, all of these six things were preexistent in Jewish theology at the time. So we see in these first 18 verses, and I know this is, these are quite complex, some of these things, but what John is doing is writing to these people, and he is basically saying, all of these things that you believed about the word are true now of Jesus Christ, because the word has now been enfleshed in a person. This is what is understanding. The word was with God, the word was God, the word is now tabernacling among us, the word is the one that signed the covenant. All of these things are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that is the underlying Jewish theology, the framework of which John is making use of. And we're going to see all of the apostles do this at various times. They take what is already existing and they point it towards Jesus Christ to show he is the fulfilment of it. Now let's go through these words in the first five verses. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now immediately, these first verses, in the beginning, that's a phrase that should make a connection in your mind. Anyone else know those verses? Yes. 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 The very first word in the Bible, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, the book of Genesis. So, John here is kind of making a connection, and we're going to see him use this connection throughout the rest of this chapter. He makes it pointing us back to the creation of the physical cosmos, as we would say. And God said in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then He goes through creation. That is the creation of everything. And when you read Genesis 1, you'll notice some themes day and night, the evening and the morning were the first day, and He separated the light from the darkness day and night, light and darkness. These are themes that Genesis uses. These are themes that John uses now in his gospel. What it's basically saying is that before anything was created or came into existence, anything of the material universe, the word already preexisted before that, i.e. the word was not part of the created order, and that's an important point. Athanasius, the ancient theologian, he said, there never was when he was not when the Son of God was not. So that means he was eternal in his nature. The word, the memra, the logos, is not part of the created order, but the word was with God, but he was also God in that way too. This is explained by the Trinity. we talked about that. I won't go into it again until later. Jesus makes a reference to this himself during his life. Remember in John 17, same gospel, when he's praying, it's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He says, now, Father, Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So this is noticing the reference there that he's saying, I had the glory with you before the world was even created. So this is the existence of the Son. His essence, is what it's saying, is divine, is deity. In his essence, he is divine. In what he actually is, in his nature, his person, his personality, his attributes and his character, Jesus is all that God is. All the essential characteristics of deity are his. He exists in his own right, independent of all creation. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. This is really one of the most monumental teachings about Jesus Christ in the world, that we understand this. This is why John, I believe, starts his gospel with it. The one that testifies to us, John is saying, this one... This word is the one who became enfleshed in Jesus of Nazareth. But make no mistake, although the enfleshment process, the incarnation, had that specific point in time, he pre-existed with the glory with the Father long before that. And if Jesus Christ does share the nature of God, that has some implications for us. We're called to worship him without cessation, obey him without hesitation, love him without reservation, serve him without interruption, and really give him all the glory forever and ever. And if what we're saying is true, and remember Luke wrote his gospel and all the gospels to tell us the exact truth of these things, Jesus said that he came to this earth to testify to the truth, if what he is saying is true, then there are some very serious consequences for denying the truth. And we'll see that as we go through these gospels. In fact, such a strong verse is this that you may be familiar that many of the cults can't handle this verse because they don't like to talk about Jesus Christ being God because if Jesus Christ is God, what he said is true and when he tells them, believe in me, there's no other way to go to heaven, they don't like that so they have to change this verse. So you may have had a little knock on your door one time and they might have given you a track that says, come to the kingdom or something like that, two sharply dressed people usually Jehovah's Witnesses are a classic example of this and they will read this they love to get into debates with Christians but they will quite often use this verse. Now what's interesting about it is before the 1950s a Jehovah's Witness used to carry around a copy of the Bible usually the ASV the American Standard Version it's, good, it's a good Bible translation and it had they, just because it used to have the name of Jehovah in it rather than Lord. However they don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't agree with what John is saying here in his gospel. But when they were using this Bible, it was quite embarrassing for them because someone could just turn to John 1.1 and show them that John said he was God. And that obviously was not good for them. So what they did is they actually pulled together a group of people and they made their own Bible translation. And this is why we always say you've got to be careful with these things. And they call it the New World Translation. Read it here. This is the same verse in the New World Translation. See if you can spot what they have done. In the beginning, the word was, and the word was with God, and the word was not God with a capital G. They've changed it to read a God with a small g, and they're using the term God there in a minuscule way. Almost it says Satan is the God of this world. A small g is not talking about deity, and that is what they've done there. Now, that's a big change if you can imagine that there's no they have no right to translate the Bible like that the Greek does not say that We could give you many many Greek scholars but I will save you all of that sort of detail now but basically this is a very good example of when a translation was guided by their beliefs in the that's the way round they've got it their beliefs influenced this translation whereas what we want to do is have the Bible influence our beliefs. As in, we build our understanding from the scripture, we don't change the Bible to fit our understanding. That's the idea. It's a very good example of how cults work. And when we talk about cults, it's referring to people who deny the divinity of Jesus Christ, primarily in this context. And as soon as the church begun, there were people springing up. Most of the debates of the early church were, de- were dealing with this issue Trying to decide and write these creeds that we have is all dealing with these issues, but this is the kind of thing that they do. And this was good for them because then you could read them John 1 1 and they could say, no, actually it reads like this. This is how it's properly translated. And they know that most people on the doorstep are not going to know ancient Koine Greek and they're not going to be able to argue with them. So it's a good way for them to show. But there are no Greek scholars to this day outside of their movement, that would agree with the translation there. So that's just an aside. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the first element. Let's look at verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Now the word here, all things, this is a very strong term. It's basically every created thing that came into being. Everything in the space-time-matter continuum, the physical cosmos, had a beginning. That is a fact that is supported by science too. Nothing. It says then nothing came into being except everything through him. And nothing means not even one thing. There was nothing. Now you could say that this is biblical cosmology. This is an understanding of the universe. It refutes all naturalistic theories of the existence of the universe. If you've studied cosmology at all, you'll know. The history of cosmology is basically trying to answer this question. Where did the universe come from? They used to believe it was eternal. And then they believed that's not quite right. Einstein came along and disproved that. And then they believed it had a beginning. And then they speculate with the Big Bang which is a secular model to try and explain the beginning of the universe apart from God. This verse also refutes many of the popular multiverse theories that are common today. different way that they can say the universe is eternal because it's been multiplying for eons forever, really. It's a, another trick to get around this verse. John here is stating that the word Christ is the agent of creation. In Psalm 33, verse 9, it says, For he spoke, and it was done, he commanded and it stood fast. The point is, this was not a natural event. This is clearly a supernatural event. The vastness of the stars and galaxies galaxies in our universe right down to the microscopic atoms of the universe, the building blocks of the universe, they were created by God. The physicist Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking, he once said that the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. They call this the theory of everything. You might have seen the movie about Hawking's life. This is what they called it, the theory of everything. Now, scientists are still looking for this all-elusive theory of everything. And what they mean by that is a hypothetical, single, all-encompassing, coherent framework of physics that fully explains and links together every aspect of the physical universe. It's a big ask. This is what they've been doing. As of yet, they've been unable to find it. I would submit to you this morning that we have already found it. The unifying explanation of the universe is in fact not a theory, it is a person. It is this person we're reading about in the beginning of the Gospel of John, the Word, the Son of God, who became man and walked as Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what it says. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1.15 about Jesus. He said, For by him... All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. That is the word, that is who we're talking about here. He then goes on, in him was life, back in John now, and the life was the light of men. Now we begin to see here the sub-theme being presented in this gospel. We've seen this reference to the Genesis creation narrative in the beginning. That brings us back to that. Now, you might remember the very first thing that God said in Genesis, the very first word we see spoken, is let there be light. God said, let there be light. And then in Genesis 2, the very first act was he breathed life into his creation, didn't he? He breathed life into Adam. Now, what John is basically saying here, he's making a play on that. Jesus was the creator of physical life But Jesus is also the source of spiritual life. Genesis is describing the physical creation. John is referring to what we would call the new creation. And this is the parallel that he's creating, and it's quite a sophisticated but amazing way that he does this. Adam's sin brought the world into darkness, didn't it? Often referred to as night, uh, this sort of concept. Again, the light and day, the day and night, the darkness concept. Jesus brought life and light into the world And he gives this to us through becoming Christian, what we call the new birth. John is now going to show us the spiritual side of this new creation. And this is significant as we go through his gospel, because the miracles that he does are all connected to these themes, making the blind man see, bringing light. So all these things creating life, we'll see all of that as we go through it. This is what comes up. And in verse 5 he says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It's a hard word to translate there, comprehend it. it. It could read, the darkness has not mastered it. And the idea here is that this light that shines through Jesus Christ to all men, it shines continually and it cannot lose to the darkness. It cannot be mastered by the darkness. Which is true if you think of the situation. If you have a dark room, what happens when you turn a light on? Who wins? The light wins, doesn't it? The darkness always, is always gone after that because light is actually a thing. Darkness is just the absence of light. That's the kind of idea that's, be, that's going on here. The light shines continually. Now, notice again the narrative playing back to the book of Genesis here. This is particular. In Genesis, it says this. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters and then God said, let there be light and there was light. So there was darkness and then there was light in the physical creation. What he's saying now is the world is again in darkness because of Adam's sin and every man is born into darkness. If you want that phrase, let there be light, that now comes through the word of God that is now no longer speaking the universe into existence. The word of God is now flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and he is here again to bring light and life to you. And that comes through the new birth, the new creation. This is the concept. You see how this is a very sophisticated introduction that John has here to, to his gospel. In the new creation, John is speaking of this world that is in spiritual darkness. The word of God incarnate enters into this darkness and brings light and life. Remember the gospel stories that we studied at Christmas. This is why when Jesus is birthed, that baby, why people are coming to him to worship him, to adore him. This is why people bring gifts to him, because this is the king that is finally going to bring light and life to the world. And this is really the message and the purpose of John's Gospel. And this is just the first five verses. And I I know there's been quite a lot of background information there. We'll move through the rest a little bit quickly without that. But this is the theme you have to have. This is what John is playing on, the creation narrative, the new creation narrative, the pre-existing understanding of what the Jewish people thought, showing them how that is fulfilled. In Jesus of Nazareth, that he is in fact the Messiah, that he is God become flesh, that he is the one that will save us. See, this is just how rich the Word of God is in these opening chapters. The Son pre existed, was with the Father, he was fully God, yet he was distinct from the Father and the Spirit. The Word is the agent of creation, he is the sustainer of all things, he is also the one who reveals the Father to us, he is the one who signs covenants into being, he is the one who brings light to the darkness and life to mankind. We call him the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Spurgeon said that he that hung upon the cross was the maker of all worlds. He that came as an infant for our sake was the infinite. How low he stooped, how high he must have been that he could stoop so low. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Mine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the new birth, the light and life of men that Yeshua brings. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.